people knew roughly, okay, we should make some light elements if the Big Bang is right. We should have this leftover glow of radiation if the Big Bang is right. And that's kind of it. But we didn't know whether the Big Bang was correct or not. In fact, it was not even the leading theory. It was competing for the leading theory with another idea called the steady state model of the universe. That's what Jim Peebles came into. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me today is longtime friend of our podcast, Ethan Siegel. He's an astrophysicist, author, and science communicator. He's the author of two books, Beyond the Galaxy, How Humanity Looked Beyond Our Milky Way and Discovered the Entire Universe, and Treknology, the science of Star Trek from tricorders to warp drive. He can be found blogging about all things physics at startswithabang at forbes.com. Ethan, welcome back. It has been an age. It has, but you know what? The universe has been full of wonderful surprises and new things for us to learn. So I'm excited to tell you and all your wonderful listeners about everything that we've learned since then, or as much as we can fit into one interview. (laughs) Well, let's see what we can talk about. I looked at our list of recent episodes and then not so recent episodes, and then basically the last two years of episodes and realized we had made a woeful error and not talking about basically any physics or astrophysics in that time. And so I wanted to fix that right away. Uh, and there's actually been an interesting Nobel Prize Award recently. So I thought we could start there talking about um, this year's physics prize. You know, this is... Uh... <laughs> When the Nobel Prize comes up every year, I'm often conflicted a lot about it because I think a lot of things about it are archaic. I, I don't like how it rewards only individual researchers instead of large collaborations because large collaborations um, are responsible often for some of the most amazing discoveries. I I often find it a, a regressive thing and I don't like how it generally rewards people who've, you know, who made these impressive discoveries decades ago. But I also think what the Nobel Prize is really good for is for raising awareness of, hey, here's this amazing way that this field has moved forward, and here are some people who were the driving force behind it. And this year, I think they did a wonderful job. The 2019 Nobel Prize in Physics went to three individuals, Jim Peebles, Michael Mayor, and Didier Quelos, um, and they are for two separate things. Jim Peebles won for theoretical cosmology and Mayor and Quelos won for exoplanets. And I think these are both fabulous awards. We'll do the exoplanets one first. If we go back to 30 years ago, uh, and you had asked the question, hey, has humanity discovered any planets outside of our solar system? I could have pointed you to maybe one or two or maybe three studies that tentatively said, hey, we've used this novel technique and we haven't confirmed anything, but we think we've detected the first planets outside of our own solar system. The way you do it is by looking at a distant star. If a planet is orbiting a distant star, the star's light, whatever type of light it is, as it arrives to you, it should be periodically shifted, right? If you have a star that's in a fixed location in the sky, you're going to see its light arriving at you, and it'll be the same with every single time you look at it. But if it has a massive planet orbiting it, remember, stars and planets don't They aren't such that, you know, the planet orbits the star and the star stays stationary. When we observe a star-planet system, the planet orbits around the center of mass of the system, and so does the star. If you were to look at our solar system and you just modeled it as the Sun and Jupiter, then you would see... Every Jupiter period or so, uh, every so often that Jupiter makes a complete revolution around the solar system, the sun also makes a smaller revolution. It makes a smaller ellipse where the sun and Jupiter's center of mass stay in that same position. The sun goes around it, meaning as it completes an orbit, 
for part of that orbit, it's moving relatively towards you. And for part of it, it moves relatively away from you. That periodicity, that towards you, away from you, towards you, away from you, is going to add a slight bit of redshift, blue shift, redshift, blue shift in, a, in an oscillatory pattern to your signal. Teasing that out is what lets you detect if there's a planet there. This is known as either the stellar wobble method or the radial velocity method. And before NASA's Kepler satellite, that famous planet-finding satellite was launched, this stellar wobble method was the prime method by which we found planets around other solar systems. Mayor and Quelos are famous because they are the first people to discover a planet around a sun-like star, around a star like our own. It wasn't around a pulsar, which is a, a dead stellar corpse known as a neutron star, and it wasn't around a black hole, and it wasn't a, a spurious discovery that was unconfirmed. This was the first robust one in 1995, and it led to this explosion of exoplanet discoveries. So, for discovering planets outside of our solar system, Mayor and Quelos are excellent people to select as the faces of this. And also to remember that over the last 24 years, since their discovery, we've now discovered over 4,000 confirmed planets around stars. In the 20th century, exoplanet science was a brand new thing. It was dubious in a lot of ways, and it is one of the most interesting fields to go into into in all of science in the 21st century. It's fascinating to me that exoplanets have won a Nobel Prize, basically that that science has won uh, a Nobel Prize. Um, and for a lot of us today, reading science news, exoplanets are so kind of run of the mill, it seems so ordinary. And I love the idea that we're being reminded with this Nobel Prize that not that long ago, exoplanets were a big deal. I know. And and when we think about it, you know, as our instrumentation gets better and better, we start to be able to look ahead and see a very bright future for exoplanets. Because right now, the most powerful telescopes we have for doing exoplanet finding are either on Earth, and they're like 10 or 11 meter class telescopes, or they're in space, and these are like two or three meter telescopes, things like Hubble. Um or smaller ones, things like Kepler. As we look to the future, we are fast approaching a big upgrade to both of those. Uh, next decade in the 2020s, the first of the 30-meter class telescopes on Earth are going to come online. Bigger telescopes means more light gathering power, higher resolution, and with coronagraphs capable of blocking out starlight, we might be able to directly image some of these planets around nearby stars. That's an incredibly exciting possibility. As we go to space with new space telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope, or if we look ahead to the 2030s, uh, two of the four major proposals for NASA's flagship mission are Louvoir and Habex, both of which would be revolutionary planet-finding observatories. Right now, we've detected lots of planets, but the majority of them are larger, more massive than Earth, and also are around smaller stars than our sun. But as we move into this next generation, we're finally going to be able to discover what we think of as the best case scenario for looking for an inhabited planet, which is an Earth-sized planet at an Earth-like distance from a sun-like star. We have yet to find one like that. But with these new observatories coming online, that's what the future of exoplanet sciences hold. And I, I can't wait for that. How big do you think the dis a discovery of an Earth-sized planet orbiting at the same distance around a sun-sized star would be? It's always difficult that for me to tell until we get there how big astrophysics news will be. Well, the thing the thing is, like, when you say, okay, we're going to find this, like, obviously, that's going to be the first announcement, and everyone will be like, oh, yay, we found a thing we've never found before, and then they'll forget about it. And, you know, you'll read things like, you know, the less reputable news sites, like, 
like the Sun or the Mirror or the Express that, with their like Infowars style headlines of like aliens on planet come to destroy or like no 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 none of that is going to happen. What I'm really excited for is when we make that discovery. Um, that we will have an observatory that might be able to do direct imaging, and that is going to solely depend on how far away the star is from us. If this is a star less than 10 light years away, we're probably going to be able to directly image that planet. And even if it comes in as just one pixel, by looking at the light from that pixel in detail, we can discover whether um, it's a uniform planet or whether it has things like clouds or continents and oceans. We'll be able to discover if we can observe the atmospheric light from it and break it up into spectra, what elements and compounds are present there. Is there water in this planet's atmosphere? Is there oxygen? Is there nitrogen? Is there methane? Is there carbon dioxide? What are the molecules that we're interested in that are present there? Uh, we'll be able to characterize what is the temperature of this planet. Uh, so all of these questions that, you know, aren't directly about, oh, is there definitely life there, but are more like these indirect signatures, we're going to be able to start to pick those up. We're going to be able to start to learn what's going on in the atmosphere on this planet, of this, on the surface of this planet. We'll be able to see, does this planet rotate and what's its rotational period? Um, those questions, the ones that go a step beyond, hey, we found an Earth-like planet around a sun-like star, that's where, for me, the really interesting questions come about. Because when you start asking those, that's going to tell you what's the likelihood of life. Is this a potentially habitable planet? And if we're really lucky, like we start seeing signatures like a, a greening and browning of the planet as the seasons change, like we see on Earth, uh, that that could be a revolutionary where we go from a potentially habitable planet to the first inhabited planet beyond our solar system. I mean, that's really uh, underlying everything that's cool about exoplanets. I mean, that's really the, the biggest potential coolness of exoplanets is the whole there might be life out there that's not us. Um, and that, I think, is why even though exoplanets are still a bit you know, we saw, we find a lot of them now. There's something like over 4,000, I think. Is that correct? That's right. Over 4,000. Almost all of them, I think more than three quarters due to NASA's Kepler mission. Yeah. So like finding them isn't a challenge anymore, but we keep looking and I think I keep my eye out for them because I know or I hope at some point we'll get that bit of news that's like, oh, 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 we found one and just there's there's just this increase of potential uh, based on what we've found and what we've seen for there to be life out there which which is just like a ball game changing thing I think I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think if you're an interested layperson who wants to follow along and know how close are we to finding uh, that that earth-like planet around a sun-like star, um, I would pay close attention to the findings as they get released from NASA's current mission, the TESS mission. TESS stands for Transiting Exoplanet uh, Something Survey. I I should really look those up before I do these interviews, right? Uh, <laughs> but what, what TESS is doing is it's basically doing the same thing that Kepler was doing, but instead of looking at the same patch of sky and getting all of these stars that are hundreds or thousands of light years away, what the TESS mission is doing is it's selectively picking out the nearest sun-like stars to Earth and looking for the smallest potentially habitable zone planets around them. So if you want to know what are the potential targets for a, an observatory like James Webb Space Telescope, where are the where are we likely to be able to look for Earth-like planets around Sun-like stars, where we might discover these holy grails of oceans, continents, or even molecules that give hints of life, like these bio hints of life beyond Earth? Look to the test mission. Look at the new planets it's finding, because this is where the main target finding, right? This is where the target finding 
funding for these potential discoveries is all coming from. So as 2019 gives way to 2020 and 2021, this is what we should be focusing on. Because once James Webb launches and it starts looking for these planets and starts observing these planets, we're going to replace this speculation we have with actual data. And we'll actually learn if life is common enough, we will find our first potentially inhabited planet beyond Earth. So what's the timeline for us keeping an eye out for that data? Well, test data is coming in now. TESS has had their first data releases already. Um, but as they start to make more and more announcements, what you're going to find is as time goes on, their signal-to-noise ratio gets better and better, and they'll start to observe multiple transits of planets in potentially Earth-like orbits. So keep your eye out for small Earth-sized planets around sun-like stars in Earth-like orbits. What we're finding now, these first planets, we're finding some really excellent candidate systems, but we're only finding planets in general that are hotter and that orbit more quickly because those are the easier ones to find. As the mission goes on and as the months turn into years, that's when we should start seeing the really interesting candidates that could be this holy grail we're looking for. Interesting. So uh, right now we're picking off the easy ones, but what we're actually interested in long term are the ones that aren't so quick and easy to spot. I mean, that's the way it always goes. If you look at the planets that the Nobel Prize went to, uh, these were planets that were larger than Jupiter, that were closer to their parent stars than Mercury is to our own sun, because those are the easiest ones to find. The ones that make the biggest signals are the largest, most massive planets that are closest to their stars. So if we're looking for an Earth-sized planet at Earth's orbital distance away from a sun-like star, we're going to have to observe that for a long time to find the signal we're looking for. Patience is a virtue. In science, there's no other way to do it. <laughs> so that's, and that's the, just half. And yeah. that's just half of the Nobel Prize. I was going to say, so that is the half for exoplanets. And we'll get into how they can split up a Nobel Prize in half uh, in a second. But talk to me a little bit about Jim Peebles. So Jim Peebles, uh, I'm actually an enormous fan of him for, and I'll just be very transparent about why. Uh, Jim Peebles is one of the most influential figures in all of physical cosmology. That's the study of how did the universe go from its initial state with the laws of physics that we know them to the way it is today. When we ask the question of how did the universe go from just the laws of physics with some initial conditions to the universe we have and see today? That's physical cosmology. So physical cosmology will tell you how the cosmic web forms and why the cosmic microwave background radiation has the properties it does and what we expect the abundance of the light elements to be that were formed in the Big Bang and how galaxies cluster and what whether our universe has dark matter or dark energy and how much and how old it is and what the fate of it is. And if that sounds like, wow, like did one person do all of that? Well, Jim Peebles made contributions to all of those, but he laid the foundation for all of modern physical cosmology, which includes that. Jim Peebles had a grad student in the 1970s named Jim Fry, who went on to become a professor at University of Florida, where he became my advisor in the early 2000s. So, Jim Peebles is what I call my grand advisor because he's my advisor's advisor. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm, I'm a branch on his academic tree. And so for him to get rewarded for all of the great work that he's done over his life in helping scientists determine 
what's the universe made of? And now we know it's 5% normal matter, 27% dark matter, and 68% dark energy. Jim Peebles laid the foundation of how we know that. Um, when you talk about the universe is 13.8 billion years old, when you talk about the universe has this 2.725 Kelvin background radiation that's left over from the Big Bang, all of this goes back to Jim Peebles. In fact, the discovery of that cosmic microwave background radiation, which goes back some 55 years to before people landed on the moon, um, Jim Peebles was the person who theoretically was writing papers about this predicted signal when two scientists in New Jersey, Arno Penzias and Bob Wilson, accidentally discovered it. And it was only because a scientist who they showed their discovery to and they were like, ah, what's this noise? He was like, oh, no, like, so I'm a referee and I'm refereeing this paper by this guy at Princeton named Jim Peebles. And he talked about this signal. So they got on the phone with Bob Dickey, who was head of that group at Princeton. And when they called up Bob Dickey, Dickey hung up the phone and just made a big announcement in Princeton and said, boys, we've been scooped. <laughs> uh, and Jim Peebles was, uh, was, I guess, the uh, was one of the boys he was talking to at that time. But that was more than 50 years ago. So even though Peebles was scooped on what could have been his original Nobel Prize, the work he did on physical cosmology, on the formation of structure in the universe, on the verification of the Big Bang, and on all these cosmic details, that's what he won the Nobel Prize for. But anything you hear of in cosmology about, oh, how do we know whether inflation happened or not? How do we know that dark matter is real? What's the evidence and alternatives to dark energy? All of that is physical cosmology, a, something that Jim Peebles, I would say, helped develop from an oxymoron where people would lambast cosmology as a pretend science that was just religion because the data was not good enough uh, into a precise science that's at the forefront of our understanding of the universe today. Jim Peebles was I won't say single-handedly, but one of the most influential figures in that transformation, the only figure that I would say was as responsible for the development of physical cosmology was a Soviet scientist named Yakov Zeldovich. But Zeldovich died in the 1980s, and you can only give the Nobel Prize to living people. So that's why I think it's great to say, let half of it go to Peebles for theoretical cosmology, let half of it go to Mayor and Quelos for exoplanets, and let's have this one really for one of the first times actually be about an astronomical discovery. Let's have this Nobel Prize be about astronomy and two of the frontiers of modern cosmology today in exoplanets and in physical cosmology and describing what the universe is made of. With Jim Peebles, we talk about him as someone very foundational um, in modern cosmology. But can you paint a little bit of a picture of what he would have been building on? What was he when he was um, first starting or first cutting his teeth as a PhD in, in physics? What was he building off of? Because, of course, everybody kind of starts with something, but there are definitely these people or these moments or these eras that can really turn a corner or build a whole new foundation, like you say, on something else. So do you have some um, some way of describing kind of what physics or at least what cosmology was like before Jim Peebles? So you want you want some context on yeah. what was what was what this is basically asking what was our picture of the universe like and how well did we understand it and how could we have improved it and this is this is going to be where Jim Peebles really shines so in the 1920s um, we discovered that spirals and ellipticals what we what we now know as galaxies, we discovered that they were actually not objects in the Milky Way, but lay far beyond it. Um, that was something that was discovered by uh, a number of people, but most famously Edwin Hubble. 
Uh, and after that discovery that these objects in the universe are far outside of the galaxy, um, you could go a step further and you can start mapping out, okay, when we see a galaxy, what are some things we can measure about it? One of them is how much its light is redshifted, which is to say um, every atom has its own spectra, right? Every hydrogen atom in the universe has the same emission lines and absorption lines. So if I see emission lines or absorption lines that correspond to these hydrogen lines but are shifted, then I can infer something about either how fast this galaxy is moving away from me or in Einstein's picture of general relativity, how much the fabric of space has expanded in between when that light was emitted by the galaxy and when that light is received here on Earth by us. So through this, we were able to discover that the universe is expanding and we were able to measure the rate at which it is expanding. Um, and from theoretical cosmology, where you start with general relativity and you say, OK, we see that on average the universe is kind of the same in all directions and roughly the same density everywhere, um, we can start to ask, OK, if I fill my universe with matter, um, what is it going to look like? If I fill my universe with radiation, how will that universe evolve? If I fill my universe with energy inherent to space itself, which we now think of as dark energy, what does that universe look like? On the largest scales, we were able to derive some very, very coarse properties of it. Like we could derive that this background radiation should exist and it should have a black body spectrum and be a few degrees above absolute zero. And we could derive that, okay, if things are hotter and denser in the early stages of the universe, um, we can say that, yeah, it should have been hot enough and dense enough that maybe you can start to fuse these earliest protons and neutrons into some elements. So before you even form any stars, you should be able to predict how much hydrogen, how much helium, how much lithium, etc., is in the universe when you look at the earliest populations of atoms. That's really where cosmology was when Jim Peebles arrived, is people were deriving some coarse bulk properties in general relativity that people knew roughly, okay, we should make some light elements if the Big Bang is right. We should have this leftover glow of radiation if the Big Bang is right. Um, and that's kind of it. But we didn't know whether the Big Bang was correct or not. In fact, it was not even the leading theory. It was competing for the leading theory with another idea called the steady state model of the universe. That's what Jim Peebles came into. What Jim Peebles started doing more intricately than anyone had ever done before is he started saying, okay, what I want to do is I want to start on the smallest scales and I want to look at all the interactions that happen between the relevant particles in the universe. I want to look at if our universe is made out of normal matter and isn't just smooth and uniform, but has these imperfections in it, right, where this one region is going to be slightly denser than the regions around it, how are those density imperfections going to grow? Can you start with some density imperfections and have gravity grow them into the seeds of structure that become stars and galaxies and clusters of galaxies and eventually this cosmic web that we see today. Can I derive details about the radiation in the cosmic microwave background, not just to see that it's uniform and follows a black body spectrum, but can I derive the details of what the shape of the spectrum should look like if there are any additional features in there and if there are imperfections superimposed on top of this uniform background? Can I link the imperfections in the cosmic microwave background to the imperfections in the universe today. Can I figure out, based on 
physics if the universe is made of all normal matter or if it's a mix of normal and dark matter? Can I tell whether the energy between normal and dark matter and radiation and neutrinos and anything else might be there? Can I tell how that energy is distributed between these different species or is it distributed isothermally, which means it stays at the same temperature uh, between different species or is it adiabatic where they have constant entropy but there's a different energy distribution right all of these questions and I, I don't expect you to follow like what do all these words mean but know that these are details about what was the universe born with in terms of ingredients? What were the initial conditions of those ingredients? How were they distributed? And what's the connection between these theoretical predictions we can make for what the universe should look like and the observable signatures we have of what we look and see when we go out and measure the universe? This is the idea of physical cosmology. We went from pre-peebles to not knowing how stars and galaxies and the cosmic web formed, how the universe began, how old the universe was. Um, we didn't know the answer, how, what the fate of the universe was. We didn't know any of these things. And now, 50 plus years later, uh, we can look at the universe and we can say, oh, wow, look at all these things we've learned. The universe began with the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. It's made of this much radiation and this much neutrinos and this much dark matter and this much normal matter and this much dark energy to within one or two percent precision. We're able to look at um, what came before the Big Bang, what set up and gave rise to the Big Bang. And we can look at the theory of cosmic inflation and tease out its observable predictions and look for them and say, oh, that one's there and that one's there and that one's there and that one's there. And we need to have better instruments to find that one. But that's amazing that we have confirmation observationally of dark matter, of dark energy, of the age of the universe, of the temperature of the leftover glow from the Big Bang, of the light elements, of the correlated structures we see in the universe. All of these things that were speculations have now become a hard, precise science. And maybe the most um, mind-blowing achievement is that we've actually determined the fate of the universe that we know whereas for generations humanity wondered philosophized over whether the universe will recollapse whether the universe will expand forever and get ripped apart or whether the universe will just coast into what we call a heat death where everything expands away from one another more and more you know, rapidly as time goes on until nothing can interact and everything that we have is just cold and dead and devoid of heat. And that's what we think the fate is, what we sometimes call the big freeze. We would have had no way to do this without the developments in physical cosmology. And most of the developments that occurred in the 60s, 70s and 80s, at least in the Western world, can be traced back to Jim Peebles. Do you think that we are still getting scientists like Jim Peebles who are a few specific people who seem to be at the forefront of something or that seem to open up a new door that allows so much more science to happen? Or are we past that era where we can kind of point to one or two people as clear conduits or clear transition points in certain eras of science. I think certainly, if we look back in history, we definitely had that in our past. And if you look as well at the kind of era of the gentleman scientist, um, there's definitely a lot of that, at least there's a, a myth of that, if not always the reality. But even if we look in sort of the 50s, 60s, 70s, we see some of that. Do we still get that? Do we still get kind of singular scientists or really small groups of scientists who become that that pivot point uh, that open us or direct us into new areas of science? Or is it becoming more difficult to point to specific people? Because it seems like so much science these days is done by huge groups rather than one or two people working together. You know, I think I think this is an interesting point. There is no doubt 
that the enormously large collaborations that we have today, um, number one, the Nobel Prize is not really set up to recognize them. With a maximum of three people per award, you, you can't really award the LIGO scientific collaboration. You'll remember a few years ago when they found gravitational waves, they gave the Nobel Prize to three people because that's the maximum. And that's kind of controversial because, uh, you know, sure, it's great that Kip Thorne won a Nobel Prize and um, Barry Barish won a Nobel Prize. And, oh, I'm going to forget the third person who was given the award for that. Um, but but it's limited to three people. So that means David Reitze, who's the executive director of LIGO and who's worked on it for 20 years, he doesn't get one. That means that the hundreds, if not over a thousand professors and grad students and undergrad students and research scientists who worked on this, who analyzed the data, they don't give it. They don't get it. It means that the person who first picked out that signal, that first signal of a gravitational wave, they don't get the Nobel Prize. So um, these large collaborations, they really have changed many of the ways that science is done. But to say that individual people are like the make or break of, no, of these discoveries, I don't think that's necessarily fair. If, for example, Jim Peebles had never existed, if he had never been born and the field of cosmology had just never had him, would we have discovered everything that we've discovered about the universe? I, I would argue, yes, yes, we would have, because the number of cosmologists we had who were working on similar problems, who who helped, you know, us understand the universe the way it is, they still would have existed. Um, we still would have had Joe Silk. We still would have had Yakov Zeldovich. We still would have had, you know, a whole slew of scientists who who worked on this with their whole lives and poured everything into it. What made Peebles so remarkable is the sheer breadth of what he worked on and how his work enabled people to build upon it and you know and that's that's a really remarkable thing to do um there are people like that today who are doing very similar work in whatever their specialized field is uh, so alan guth and andre linde have done that for their field of inflation where they have worked out many of the details uh Ed Birchinger at MIT, who whose name is never really talked about in Nobel Prize discoveries, um, he has worked out a whole slew of details for structure formation as it relates to different models and types of dark matter. Um, so I think we do have these individual people making theoretical contributions, making astronomical discoveries, but they're not the same people who are working at the forefront of these large collaborations in general. So there are a lot of different ways to contribute to science. Um, and as long as you're not, you know, jockeying to do science because you want to win the Nobel Prize, which is a terrible motivation for doing science, in my opinion. Um, you know, there are many different ways to do good science, and you can do that in a small lab with a small group of people looking at a specific question. And if you get lucky and you discover something major, uh, you know, you could get catapulted into superstardom. Um, and if you don't get lucky, you learn something new about the universe anyway. And for me, that's the reason to do science is not because you want the Nobel Prize and not because you're hellbent on making that enormous breakthrough, but because you want humanity to know something that was unknown before your research did what it was designed to do. That's that's why you do the science you do. Do you think the Nobel Prizes are still valuable for us in 2019 and looking forward? Or should we revamp them to acknowledge that some of our most important science or some of our most 
fascinating science is often put forward by these massive groups of people. For example, um, last April, there was quite a lot of news because we had an image uh, for the first time of a black hole's event horizon, which was really cool. But that was an enormous group of people that made that happen over a really long amount of time. And if I was on the Nobel Prize Committee, and wanted to honor that leap if if that was something that I wanted to honor. There's not a clear person that I would give that prize to because it was such a group effort. Well, it's the same thing that they would have to do uh, like they did with LIGO, where you'd have to say, like, well, who are the contributors that we want to reward for this versus who are the contributors that we don't feel are top three about it, right? Because these are the Nobel's rules. So I'll say, um, I'll say, yeah, sure, you can say... You can say absolutely, yeah, we should change the Nobel Prize. We should change the rules of the Nobel Prize to reflect how science is done today. And maybe we can, uh, and maybe we can give out awards to collaborations too. And then we can reward the Event Horizon Telescope appropriately. If they decided that this is a Nobel worthy discovery, um, and in 2020, um, we're going to award the Nobel Prize in physics for this. Uh, who should we include? Um, I would, I would say, you know, based on my guess, I would narrow it down to four people that I would say choose three out of them, um, because you want to pick the people who were the most influential in enabling this discovery to happen, um, who were the prime movers behind it. So I would say if you're going to give it to people, um, you'll definitely want to consider Shep Doleman because Shep Doleman pioneered, founded, and led the Event Horizon Telescope Project. He was the one who built the collaboration of hundreds of scientists who got permission to put the additional equipment on the existing observatories to take the simultaneous observations. Without him, there would be no Event Horizon Telescope, and I think he should win for that. Um, I think Heino Falke, uh, whose name is much better known in European audiences than American audiences, uh, he wrote the paper by himself that detailed how this technique that the event horizon telescope leveraged called very long baseline interferometry could be used to image a black hole's event horizon. This, this work by Heino was basically the work that, that led to the event horizon telescope being able to be built. Um, and so I think that's pretty important. I think Roy Kerr, you know, when we talk about exact solutions in general relativity. They're incredibly rare. In 1915, Einstein put forth the theory of general relativity. And the next year, Carl Schwarzschild found a solution for if you have empty space-time with a single point mass in there, and that's the solution for a non-rotating black hole. So Einstein's relativity, 1915, Schwarzschild's first solution, 1916. Then you can say, okay, well, realistic black holes shouldn't just have mass, but they should also spin, right? Stars all rotate. Angular momentum is a conserved quantity in the universe and black holes arise from stars. So if your star was rotating, your black hole should be rotating and a realistic black hole shouldn't just have mass, but should also have angular momentum. That solution wasn't found until 1963. So it took just a few months to find the solution for a point mass. To add in rotating rotation to that mass, that took over 40 years. Roy Kerr is still alive. Roy Kerr has never won a Nobel Prize for finding this exact solution. I think if they gave the Nobel Prize in physics for the Event Horizon Telescope, that wouldn't be possible without Kerr's theoretical work. And finally, my fourth candidate is a Frenchman named Jean-Pierre Luminet. Way back in the 1970s, Luminet wrote and programmed and 
gave the results from the very first simulation of what the photons from around a black hole would look like way back in the 1970s. He even suggested that a great potential target to look for a black hole would be the galaxy Messier 87, which is the galaxy they wound up constructing the first image of the Event Horizon black hole with. So I would say, yeah, you know, there are plenty of people who have made enormous contributions, including in terms of software, in terms of making the image, in terms of analyzing the data, in terms of collecting the data. Um, but I'd be willing to bet that three of those four will be the ones who will be awarded the prize if it goes to the Event Horizon Telescope Project. As far as whether that's the best way to give out prizes, look, I, if it were up to me, we wouldn't give prizes to individuals. I don't really care that it's called Hubble's Law or the Hubble-Lemaitre Law or the Hubble-Lemaitre-Robertson Law because you want to give uh, Howard Robertson credit for putting things together independently before Hubble did, even though he was never credited for it. I don't, I don't like this. I don't like naming things after individuals because if these individuals didn't exist, the science would be no less true. I would rather see that we give a Nobel Prize to the discovery of a black hole's event horizon. Uh, I would like to see that we that we call it the redshift distance relation rather than worry about if we give Hubble or Lemaitre or Robertson or whoever credit for it. I'd like for us to be excited about the science. But I also recognize psychologically I'm not how most people work. Most people need heroes or role models or individuals that they can look up to, that they can aspire to be like. And for that, I think any big award helps bring those people to prominence. And I think that's something useful that the Nobel Prize does, because even though they don't do it the way I would like to do it, the fact that uh, Mayor and Quelos and Peebles won this year's Nobel Prize. It gives us an opportunity to learn and discuss and share with the general public why exoplanet science is so fascinating, why physical cosmology is so interesting and Nobel worthy. And it allows us to talk about looking ahead why it's so phenomenal that we imaged a black hole's event horizon and what went into it and who are some of the people who had their hands in it from the earliest stages who brought this to fruition. So I think even though it's not my ideal prize, none of them are. And I think it's great because this gives the general public a chance to become aware of the science that's driving our world forward and to appreciate the impact that these discoveries have on our lives. Do you think it's important still that the Nobel Prize tends to be looking backwards? It tends to award people for work that was done by modern standards quite a long time ago. I mean, obviously, the exoplanets, I think, was uh, their work was done in the mid 90s. And yes. you discussed when Jim Peebles was working, which was um, well, back- still now. Also, let's not pretend that sure. Jim Peebles hasn't continued to <laughs> To, to make enormous contributions to the field of cosmology up through the modern day. He had a paper come out uh, within the last month on dark matter in galaxies in the universe. Um, but yeah, the work he's being awarded for is quite old. When they discovered the Higgs boson and they gave the award to Peter Higgs, um, I thought to myself, boy, shouldn't they have really included some, you know, some more LHC scientists, some large Hadron Collider scientists on it? But you know what? I think that when you look to the past, you're looking to the past with the lenses that you've developed at the present, right? If if nature had been different, maybe we wouldn't be giving Jim Peebles a Nobel Prize because maybe, you know, if the universe had turned out to be dominated by normal matter with no dark matter and no dark energy, maybe we would have given it to one of the people I mentioned earlier. Maybe we would have given it to Joseph Silk instead because 
his work would have been more relevant to the universe we actually had. When you when you do your work, um, you know, we don't like to think that how much of it is guesswork, how much of it is only valid based on certain assumptions. What I find remarkable about Peebles' work, for example, is how model proof it is. If you said, oh, the universe only has a tiny bit of matter or the universe is all normal matter, the work that Peebles did is still valid. He did it for the general case. And that's very exciting to me as a theorist is when someone can, you know, you're not playing the game of whack-a-mole. You've got like, I don't know, uh, you've got You've got like napalm, like you'll kill all the moles with this. This is great. Um, that's when someone makes a contribution like that, where they where they really just solve the general case for things, where they generalize it and, and hit all the boxes. That's that's theoretical work that I'm always impressed by. That's why when you asked for a modern analog to Peebles, um, I said someone like Ed Birchinger, because Ed Birchinger takes problems that a lot of people have worked on, and he just solves the general case. So you can say, like, okay, like, I can look at what would, um, if dark matter was made out of a wimp, a weakly interacting massive particle, what would that mean for the cosmic structure that forms on small, lower-than-galaxy-size scales? This was something that people worked on for years and had many conflicting answers. And then Ed Birchinger worked it out. And that's the answer. And everyone uses that as the answer because it's right and it's comprehensive. When you do that, I think that's a valuable contribution. Will you always be rewarded for your work with a Nobel Prize? No, of course not. Um, but, but by learning who's won Nobel Prize, what was the work that they did, how did they do it, um, if you care to get into it, you can come away with, I think, a lot of uh, figures you can look up to that you can respect and that you can, you know, the deeper you look, the more you'll be able to learn. And I feel like the Nobel Prize, whether we reform it or not, whether it keeps the current rules or not, um, if we look at it in the right way, we can absolutely gain that knowledge, gain that public understanding, and help develop that awareness and appreciation for science. For my part, Nobel Prize season in particular uh, in physics, but in other areas as well, it is a good reminder for me and I think for everyone that science is a long tail practice. It's very difficult in the moment or even 10 years ahead of you to really understand the impact of, of the science you're working on, because some of it has such a long tail that unfurls from, from one piece of information or from, uh, one, you know, one cluster of years of, of work. And I think the Nobel Prize for me is a good reminder of, how much of what we have now and some of the cutting edge science that we are working on right now is built on so many layers of past effort and past work. Um, it's not something where you can look at uh, work being done today and figure out what the application of it is in five years. Sometimes we don't reach an end game or a tangible outcome for 20 years or 30 years or 50 years. And that's okay. And for me, the Nobel Prize, I'm always, I'm always interested to look through the Nobel Prizes and see how far back some of them are reaching because that tells me that that, that something today is making us look back and at that moment that maybe was 50 years ago and say that that's still important. We're still feeling the ramifications now of that thing that happened or, or that group of people who worked on a, on a topic or an idea. We're still feeling that moment. And that to me reminds me how, how long tail science is. You know, I, I absolutely agree with that. And to underscore your point, I think that one of the one of the most interesting Nobel Prizes that was given out recently uh, was earlier this decade. They gave one out to the discovery of the blue LED, the blue mm. light emitting 
Didoed. And that's something where you look at that and you're like, oh, come on, really? Like, you didn't give it for the red LED or the yellow or the green LED. <laughs> but the but, blue one. But, but the blue one, the one they found finally in like the 90s. And they gave that Nobel Prize this decade, more than 20 years after it was discovered. Why? Why is that such a big deal now? And I'll tell you, by asking you to look in the palm of your hand at your smartphone, which I'm sure is in the palm of everyone's hand who's listening to this, right? Um, Your smartphone uses LEDs, but it couldn't make white unless it had blue, right? You need a red, a green, and a blue in order to make white. Making that blue LED, that was the last holdout between giving us, you know, LED screens and LED touch screens and all of this thing that now is just part of all of our lives. You you, you look at tablet computers and smartphones and all of this was possible because we were able to make that blue led and the trick you know is uh is a physics trick of okay you need to you need to create an electron structure that has you know it's basically like a game of golf right you start off with your electrons in this state and if you put your electron in the hole you emit the light you want and that's it that's just it all of this is a is a game of electron golf where you're trying to put the electron in the right hole but you have to design the right golf course or you won't get the right photons out so that's what the blue LEDs are for and the application to smartphones and and touch screens and other things like that is why you know no you, you couldn't have said oh blue led this is going to solve the problem we've been trying to solve forever let's give it the nobel prize right away it's only looking back after decades of hindsight seeing how things have developed seeing how important and essential this is to technology that you can really recognize how important this breakthrough was so sometimes with the Nobel Prize, we have this benefit that we're looking through the lens of history to know, okay, we're rewarding this not because we think this is going to be the discovery from this year that's going to make the future possible. We, we often give out the Nobel Prizes because this is a discovery that led the, that led the present to become what it is. I think about things like... Uh, really large prime numbers, which for years and years were a curiosity of mathematicians. It was something people investigated and researched because it was interesting to them, but there were no practical applications of finding really big prime numbers. And now modern cryptography is all about really big prime numbers. And that's how things are possible, like online shopping and credit cards that you can tap and swipe. All that came from something that was just an interesting thing that someone wanted to think about. Yeah, and that's just it is. Can you it's basically like this is the this is the lock and key problem, right? Is like, okay, like you have a lock, that's cryptography, right? Well, uh, how complicated is your lock? If your lock is too simple, it'll be very easy to pick. If your lock is really complex, it'll be really difficult for anyone without a key to open. And what's the most difficult lock you can build for a classical computer? It's something that's enormously computationally expensive to crack. And so when you say, look at this enormous number, is it a prime number or what are the factors of this not prime number or, you know, anything like those mathematical questions. If you try to brute force it, it'll take you the age of the universe to crack it with current computers. But if you have the key, you can open it right away. And that you're absolutely right. Having the math problem at your disposal, but having the answer in the, you know, in the pocket of whoever wants to have that key, uh, that's a great solution to it. And that's how we do modern cryptography. It's uh, an amazing world we live in, for sure. I know that sounds trite, but I, I like to be reminded of it. And there's really no better way than science, I find, to remind me of that on an almost daily basis. Well, science, remember, is is how we built it. All the stuff that amazes you about this world, um, pretty much none of it, you know, except what's naturally occurring, 
uh, all of these amazing things in our modern world exist because of science, exist because of the resources we've developed in in constructing these things and in building these experiments and in making these observations and in doing the theoretical work to build a model and a framework that accurately represents reality. And if you look at our modern world with our technological convenience and the unparalleled knowledge we have of what this world is and how it works and how all the systems that exist in it work um you couldn't have done this without science. You know, 10,000 years ago, the, the biggest scientific achievement was that we invented the plow. And wow, what an advance that was. But you come to the last hundred years, and I could easily make the argument that our civilization has advanced more in the first hundred years than it did for the previous hundreds of thousands of years for, from the first emo- emergence of Homo sapiens. We have definitely come far and we are continuing to move forward. Hopefully we will continue to move forward in great ways. Ethan, it is always a pleasure to have you on and we should try very hard to not make it two years in between visits. Well, I'm, uh, I'm sure now that we're back in touch and your listeners get to listen to this, you'll get feedback and either I'll hear a call from you again soon saying, have him back on for sure, or I won't. And I'll know what the response was then and I'll keep it to myself. Well, if you want to send messages about how much you want to have Ethan back on the show, the best place to do it is in the comments on the, uh, on, in the show notes for this episode, which as always you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Ethan, lovely to have you back again. It's been my pleasure and keep curious about the universe, everyone tuning in. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>